Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. What do you think? (laughs) A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? For just a little while, I don't know if we're going to teach or if we're going to preach tonight. God knows. But we're going to talk about one word. Motive. Motive. You may be seated. So I would ask the question. Why is it that one would say, No, I'm not going to go. And then at some point in time, changes his mind and then he goes. And I would ask, why would the other son, in the moment when he's told, say, yes, I will go and, and then end up not going? And we could fill in the blanks. Uh, perhaps there's been a time in your life, as there has been in mine, when you've committed to something that you regretted committing to after you committed it. And it might have just been in that moment and at that time, you didn't have the heart or you, you, you didn't want to disappoint someone and so you commit to it. And then you're obligated to that commitment and, and I know for me there's been times I've had to really, really struggle to fulfill that commitment. At any rate, there's always a motive behind it. I would suspect that the son who said he would go in the moment wanted to please his father and did not want to disappoint him. And interestingly enough, the son that said he wouldn't go didn't seem to have a problem disappointing his father. Or did he? Because in the end, he decided he had to go. Motive. Motive. Um, I'll share this with you. It, It was... Two weeks ago, this past Monday, um, I got done with work, and so then I went to work, as I do sometimes, <laughs> and so I was at my second job, and, and, uh, and I was asked if I was going to make it to prayer that night, and I said, I, I don't know, I'm trying to get ready to leave town for the holiday, and, and uh, I don't know if, if I'm going to make it. And that was about the end of that conversation. And I went back to work, and, and um, I just, something changed. <laughs> uh, something within me just started welling up, and I, I know what it was. It was God. It was God calling me to prayer. And, and, and I felt compelled, and, and what I had said I wasn't going to do, I knew I had to go. And there's a motive behind it. Uh, 
And, and I'll just be real here for a moment with you. Part of it is that we're a part of this body of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks in depth of the body of Christ and that we are all members of this body, fitly joined together. And so part of my motive is, I know my brothers and sisters in arms who are going to be there and be faithful are going to, they're going to be affected if I'm not. And I had a motive to be there. What's even more important is God had a motive. Because it was while I was in my truck on my way here that I found out about Grandma Brown being rushed to the hospital. And to me, I feel the Holy Ghost. (laughs) To me, it's amazing how God moves. God has a motive too. So with that, if you would, turn with me to the book of Jonah for a moment. Jonah chapter 1 and and verse 1, motive. We're going to talk about motive. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And let let me just stop for a second and and say this is flowing with what is the will of God that I'd been speaking of uh, about a month back. And, and before we go any further, I'll just remind you that, you know, we looked up some scriptures um, in, in 1 Thessalonians and um, regarding, and in uh, 1 Peter regarding the will of God and what the will of God is that never changes. It's always God's will for us to be involved with the body of Christ. Uh, that does not change. God wants us to minister to one another. God wants us to, to encourage one another. God wants us to pray without ceasing. And there's all these things, and you can go back and listen to the, to the tape online or, or the CD or whatever, the sermon online, and it's all there. And this is a continuation of that. But those things never change. That part of the will of God never changes. It's always God's will for the body of Christ to be healthy, to be strong, and to be in prayer, and to be encouraging one another. Now, this is the other part of God's will, and this is the part of uh, the the will of God that we play a a role in, um, specifically with the decisions we make. And so here we have Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. So I'm going to pose the question right away. Why? Why did he flee to Tarshish? And we see pretty quickly in in, in Scripture that there could be some powerful reasons why. But, But I will point this out. The first thing was to flee from the presence of God. He's trying to not only get away from the will of God, he's trying to get away from even the presence of God. Let's continue reading. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from The presence of God. This is amazing. Can you imagine that God speaks to you 
in such a matter-of-fact way. And for some reason, you want no part of it. God told him, go speak against Nineveh. Go speak this word. And he runs the opposite direction. Now, I preached on this before, on, on Jonah. And so we know the Ninevites were the most brutal of people. They were so brutal and so evil that even their furniture they would make with the bones of their adversaries. Cannibalistic. These were evil people. And so it would make sense. It would be logical that Jonah wouldn't want to go there out of fear. And so that would be a, an easy surface reason to not want to go there. But there's a problem here. He's trying to get away from the presence of God. Get out of the presence of God. And, and, and I'll tell you, and if you're familiar with the story, it's, it's not because he's afraid of the people. Let's jump ahead to chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now this is after all of the drama of going onto the ship, a storm coming up, being cast overboard, and being in the belly of a large fish that God prepared for three days. Three days. And then the word, God causes the, the, the fish to take them back to Nineveh and spit them out on the ground, on the shore. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We're talking about the will of God, and we're talking about motive. Jonah has a motive, and God has a motive. Amen? Hmm. What's the motive? What is the motive? Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Awesome message. Can you imagine going out into your community or into downtown Milwaukee or Oconomowoc and the message God wants you to speak is God is going to destroy this city. Nothing else. No message of hope. No message of, of exceeding grace or exceeding mercy or exceeding love. The message he speaks is you're all going to die. God is going to take you out. That's it. It works. Maybe we should try it. <laughs> and the people of Nineveh, in verse 5, believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word even reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king that, and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And can you imagine, with only the message of God is going to kill you, their response, let everyone turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands, and these were a extremely violent people. They're going to turn. They're willing to turn from everything they were, everything that defined them. For, for what? Who knows? This is the way the ESB reads it. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They are willing at the words of a prophet that are just words of destruction. They are willing to turn from everything they are in the maybe hope that God would relent. That is amazing. That blows my mind. A hundred and twenty soul, hundred twenty thousand soul revival, because he went and spoke words of destruction. And as so many times in the Bible, there's troubling things just go deeper and seem even more troubling. Chapter four and verse one, and it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Because God, when he saw it and how that they had turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so it displeases Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh God, is not this, and now we'll start to see the motive revealed. And, and, and this is where I say, if you find the motive, you will reveal the heart. Everyone has a motive. And if you find that motive, you will expose their heart. Jonah says, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. It's almost as if what he's saying is, God, even in this Old Testament time, when there was the chosen people of Israel and everyone else, Jonah's actually saying, because I know of your grace, that's why I didn't want to come. That almost seems crazy. I think it's even worse. I think the best way we can see this is that Jonah's motive was that he didn't trust God's motive. And I want to let that set in for a minute because that ought to scare us, even the thought of it. His, Jonah's motive was that he didn't trust God's motive. God, I went the other way because of what your plan was. God, I know better than you know. My motive is better than your motive. 
You want to know something even more crazy? Chapter 2 says he spent three days in hell in the belly of the whale. I'm quoting the King James there. Three days in the belly of hell could not remove the motive of Jonah's heart. That's crazy. That's how intense the motive is. Jonah had a motive. God's motive was more than just grace. God was granting Israel grace in the process. It was another extra hundred years because of Nineveh's conversion that God gave Israel another hundred years before they'd go into captivity. That was God's motive. That's always God's motive. We will never see. Now let's start speaking in faith. We will never be able to see the picture God sees. We only know so much. We're only aware of so much. Where we look through a glass darkly, God sees it all crystal clear. God knows the beginning from the end. Matter of fact, even when God tests us, and I was thinking about this one, and I'm still thinking about it, so if it comes out and flops, okay, we'll pick it up another time. But even when God's testing us, you realize God's not really testing you because he wants to know. God already knows. It's a test for you. <laughs> it's not him. It's not a test for him. He's not looking to see the results. He already knows. It's to prove and improve you and me. God has a motive. God's motives are great. God's motives are magnificent. They're marvelous. They transcend what we could even possibly imagine in our wildest of dreams. It's true. He had a motive. All right. For our second one, our second example, let's go back a little bit further in Scripture. And, and there's some examples in the Word that when I'm reading my Bible and I'm doing studies, I, I come across some brutal places in Scripture and I kind of get excited to actually preach about them if I can because I figure no one ever preaches about these. And then Brother Steve Kiley goes ahead and... <laughs> The last sermon he preached, uh, he, he went here. And, and I thought for sure, <laughs> I thought for sure as he started, there's no way he's going to go all the way through this chapter. And he did. <laughs> and, and so the awesome thing is, I, I didn't feel at all like he, well, am I missing the mark? Or, you know, can I preach that after he just kind of preached about it? No, I took it as confirmation. God is good. So 1 Kings chapter 13, and we won't be here long. And we're going to go to, to verse 11 when we start reading and to set it up. Um, this is right during the time of, of the, the beginning of the divided kingdom. This is right where uh, Rehoboam has gone ahead and decided that he would listen to the, the elders and then he would listen to the youngers and, and he went with the advice of the, the, his peers. And, and so... Because of that, Israel was just asking for um, some, a little bit of reprieve, and, and he wouldn't give it. And so it ends up rent. Oh, what God had spent nearly a thousand years setting up, one man rents in one moment's time with a horrible decision. And so 
the kingdom's divided and, and you would think that Jeroboam, who gets an opportunity to lead 10 of the tribes, you would think after God warns him and tells him, just obey my laws, endear yourself to my principles and my precepts, and I will establish you like I established David. And you know the first thing that Jeroboam goes out and does? Uh, well, wait a second here. I've got the northern kingdoms, and Jerusalem's back in the southern kingdom, and, and they're spo we're supposed to go back three times a year for these feasts. I better nip that in the bud. And so he goes ahead and he sets up a golden calf at the, the southern tip of his territory and the very northern tip of his uh, territory. And it's here, right here, that this young prophet is coming to give a word and a warning to Jeroboam. And he's told by God. God gives him the word. It's God's will for him to deliver this message. And God also tells him, when you're done, you don't stop to eat or drink. And you're going to go home another way. And in verse 11, now an old prophet lived in Bethel. And his sons came to him and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? So the old prophet is asking, which way did he go? So you see already that there's a reason why God set things in motion and told the young prophet, don't go the same way you came. You disguise yourself. Go a different way. I mean, he didn't tell him to disguise himself. He's saying, go a different route. God was trying to protect the young prophet. I do believe that. I, oh, I really do believe that. And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water or drink there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And this was truth. He, he was a prophet. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. And so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now, this is a brutal example in Scripture. Because what happens, God ends up speaking to the old prophet who hasn't heard from God in a while. And the very word that God speaks to him is a prophecy of death for the young prophet for his disobedience. And so the point I'm going to make here is the old man had a motive. God did not tell him to go snatch up the young prophet. God, didn't, God never spoke to him. And, and I'll point out to you just a pattern we see in Scripture that he's old. And, and how many times do we see when their eyes go, go, grow dim? When they're old and their hearing goes, when they're old. Just like Eli. Eli, when he was old and there was no vision, there, there was no voice of God. And so it's the same thing here with this prophet, with the old prophet. 
And so what he does is with a motive. Now, we're talking about the will of God, and we're going to really get into it in just a minute. And I'm going to trust that this is a place of faith with mature saints. But I'm going to speak the truth. Everyone has a motive. And we're told in the scripture, we're told to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We're also told that we will have to give an account for every idle word we speak. And that's just the idle word. I'll use that example to say we're going to give an account to God. And if we're going to give an account to God, all of us, regardless of whether we're saved or not, regardless of whether the, the, the pages of life are stained with the blood of Christ or not, we are still going to give an account. And if we're going to give an account of our words, we're going to give an account of our deeds. It, we would be foolish to think you're not going to have to give an account for your deeds. Now, now grace rules the day. I'm not fighting against grace. I'm saying we have a responsibility. A, hmm, let me just tell you the truth. When we get to heaven, when I get to heaven, I will have no one to blame for anything other than me. I will speak another word of truth. I will always have a pastor in my life. I need authority in my life. Being under authority gives me authority. Being under authority gives me protection. I want that and I need it. You want it and you need it. But my pastor is only going to have to give an account for what he's done regarding me. He will not give an account for my decisions. He will not have to give an account for your decisions. He will have to give an account for the words he speaks. And I'm just saying generally, <laughs> we need to know the will of God. You need to know the voice of God. Scripture tells us that, that his sheep know his voice, right? We need to know the voice of God. And so what we're seeing here is an older man with a motive costing the life of a younger prophet because he heard the voice of God, he knew the voice of God, and yet he listened to a man with a motive. I would say we need to be very careful as we speak in other people's lives. Be very, very careful of speaking on behalf of God. It cost this young man his life. And you almost can't blame him because he's listening to an elder. But God's voice was clear. He knew it. And he didn't stray from it. Both times that he recounted it, it was exactly the same. <laughs> And so, we've got to know the voice of God. And when you know the voice of God, and it'll always be backed up by his word, cling to it, and you don't ever let go. Don't ever let go. But at the same time, know that there's always a motive. <laughs> Everyone has a motive. And God has a motive. All right. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 21.
Is this all right? If you have any questions, feel free to ask, not now, but after. I don't have time to answer them right now. That clock is like twice as fast as every other clock in the world. <laughs> Who set that up? I want to know. <laughs> Acts chapter 21. So what we have here is we have Paul. We'll use a, a, a New Testament example here and perhaps hit a tone of preaching for a moment. We'll start with Acts chapter 20 and verse 22. Paul knows he's coming to the end of his ministry. And so there's going to be a flurry of events that take place. But Paul, Paul's pretty sure of his ministry. He's pretty sure of his calling. And so as he's, as he's starting a, a goodbye tour, if you will, um, we're going to see some things unfold, and we'll point them out here. So chapter 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Constrained by the Spirit, okay? So he's feeling led of the Spirit. He's feeling held in place by the Spirit that he's to go to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that uh, imprisonment and afflictions await me. And I have to apologize. Because... Do <laughs> you realize what, what just happened? Every city he goes to, he's being prophesied to. It's not in the notes, I'm just picking it up now. Every city hmm, that the Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is Paul's farewell tour. Matter of fact, it's a little deeper than that. Paul's making rounds to those that he's ministered to, perhaps those he's won to the Lord, even those he's mentored and discipled. And so these encounters are, are ending in, in very emotional times and in emotional moments. They're never going to see their beloved Paul again. He knows this is the last time. Can you imagine knowing that? That you'll never see your mentor ever again. I think we would make the most of that time, right? Wouldn't want that time to end. Paul's knowing it, and so are the people that he's, he's visiting and that he's seeing along the way. So, this is the last time. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 21. And we'll start with verse 3. Paul's 
already traveling from port to port and place to place. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So he's being prophesied to again. Now Paul is certain that he's to go to Jerusalem. And yet, everywhere he's going, he's being prophesied to, if you go, you're going to be put in bonds, you're going to be imprisoned. There is a conflict in the prophecies to some degree. And we'll see that more clearly as we continue to read. When our days there were ended in verse 5, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. I really wish Luke had taken a little bit more time to write a little bit more in depth on what that must have looked like. Once again, it's more saints. It's more people that Paul perhaps has mentored, people that are near and dear to him, that are saying farewell for the last time. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at... uh, Potamos, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Hmm. There's more women of the word right there. Powerful women. They prophesied. While we were staying For many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judah. And coming to us, he he took Paul's belt and bound his, his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt, this belt, and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people, when we heard this, remember this is this is Luke writing here. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. But then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord, Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, they were trying to persuade him. We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. I will pause for a moment just to say, we need to be sure of what God's will is. When we look at the word of those immutable things, being a part of the body, ministering to one another, the commission even, these things are the will of God. And we need to be sure of them. We need to be sure of the voice of God. Why? Well, we roll up our sleeves. And are you ready? 
There needs to be a motive. There needs to be a motive. So, Acts chapter 21. Paul is arrested in the temple. We find in Acts chapter 22 that Paul goes before the Roman tribune. He's questioned, he's badgered. In chapter 22, Paul also goes before the council of the priests. This was not a pretty place. He's once again badgered. He's, he's ridiculed and persecution's beginning. Chapter 23, the Jews plot to kill Paul. There's a handful of Jews that make a vow that they will not eat until they kill Paul. Paul's in the hands of the Romans. They are so zealous in their hatred for Paul that they're scheming to come up against the Romans to kill him. In chapter 23, in chapter 24, Paul finds himself before Felix, the governor. In chapter 25, Paul goes before the king Agrippa and Bernice. And because he's not making any progress in his case, he has to ultimately plead his case to Caesar. In chapter 27, we find Paul being shipwrecked. Preceding the shipwreck for many days. So many days they lose track of time. They're being hammered with a storm to, uh, to the point where they're, they're, t they're taking the rudder and tying it up. And they're just letting the ship go wherever it would blow. All hope is lost during that time. But that's another sermon. They find themselves shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Hmm. And then we get to chapter 28, and Paul arrives in Rome. Why do we need to be certain of the will of God? Because it's going to be questioned. Why do we need to be certain of the will of God and the voice of God in our lives? Why does it need to be anchored so deep? Because to get where God's taken us, there's times that are going to be most difficult. Paul is having some opportunities to proclaim the way, the death, the burial, the resurrection. He's having opportunities along the way to, to tell of his own testimony. But it's to no avail because even with the best of the best that he's got, the result, almost thou hast persuaded me. We draw to the end of the book of Acts. For what? Paul's committed himself to bonds. For what? Acts chapter 28 and verse 17. After three days, he called together. This is Paul in Rome. After three days, he called together the leaders, the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people, or the customs of our fathers. Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled 
to appeal to Caesar. And though I had no charge to bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you. Now, these are Jews in Rome that Paul has gotten to come together and to visit him. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope here. Maybe he can convert someone along the way. He's committed himself to be an ambassador in bonds, and yet there's been little fruit to show for it. But when... This is why I asked to speak to you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judah about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you that your views, uh, what your views are, for with regard to this, with regard to this sect, or with regard to this message, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved and disagreeing amongst themselves they departed after Paul had made one statement and this says it all after hearing prophets prophesy to him after hearing huh, his loved ones plead with him don't go you don't have to do this Paul was so certain that this was God's will there's motives all over the place. And after making a treacherous journey to get here, I can't help but feel the frustration in the phrase that Paul speaks that turns away those even that almost believed. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears, huh, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. Lest you should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. I don't know about you, but I feel right here in this moment in Scripture, I feel Paul's pain and his disappointment. I'll point out, the book of Acts is almost over. I know it never ends, but the recorded history that we have of that early church is coming to an end. He's given everything. He was warned of it, prophesied of it, and yet he was so sure, and he had a motive. He's appealed to Caesar. Let me just share with you a view, a clip of what Caesar, of Nero Caesar, what he looked like. 
Caesar's house. Hmm. Never had humanity risen higher. than in Caesar's house. Never had humanity fallen lower than in Caesar's house. Nero poisoned his own brother. He banished, then killed his own wife in anger and a fit of rage. He kicked to death his mistress out of uh, paranoia. He killed his own mother, executed her. Now, when fire broke out in, in the slums of Rome, he took the occasion to blame the Christians. It was on the heels of this his own lies, that he initiated the slaughter of the Christians. There was no immorality that was, that was a stranger in the house of Nero. This was an evil place, and this was an evil man. All this, and 31 years old, when he died. During his time, Rome was filled with paganism. It was accustomed to excess and debauchery, but Nero Caesar even made Rome gasp. Huh. No one saw persecution wrought on the human body like that Nero introduced in his rule. The early church called Nero the beast. The beast. The motive. The motive. Two more scriptures. Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. Going way back to the beginning. Paul's Paul. Saul is persecuting the Christians when he has an encounter, an undeniable encounter with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God takes a man that was zealous for what he believed. I've heard it said, oh, Saul was an evil man. Saul was a man of passion. He was passionate for the law. It was all he knew. And yet, God was going to take that passion and use it for his kingdom. And on a road to Damascus, God blinds Saul and sets him on a collision course with a man of God. Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. Ananias, God speaks to Ananias of Paul, and he's nervous because this Saul has been killing Christians. In verse 15, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This prophecy from God was spoken into the ears of Saul, who we know as Paul. Paul spending three years alone with God became intimate with the voice of God. This is the prophecy, though, that he clung to. This is the prophecy that he spoke of in his encounters with Felix the governor. And probably even with Nero. Saul had, Saul, Paul had his day. Even in the court of Caesar. He didn't win him though. 
I have one last scripture. Philippians chapter 4. The beast. The beast. Philippians chapter 4 and we'll start reading in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from I'm not even going to try and pronounce that name. I apologize. The gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. But he's not done. Final greetings. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And I quote, especially those of Caesar's household. I got a word of encouragement for you tonight. There may be a lot of things come up against you. Stay true to the voice of God. Stay true to the will of God. God has a motive And God's motive is greater than ours. It transcends what we can see. And even through all that Paul had gone through, even all the opportunities that he had to witness along the way, it may have seemed hopeless and that nothing was being accomplished while he was in bonds. I'm sure he questioned whether he was really still in the will of God or not. There were those who were prophesying against it. There were those who were saying, Paul, don't go. You don't have to go. But I'm here to tell you that even in the household of the beast, God's word was proclaimed and God's voice was was spoken and God reached in even into the belly of the beast and drew out Christians and souls for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Beware of the motive. Everyone has a motive. Paul's motive was that he had been given a word and a promise that he would minister the gospel message, the truth of the way, to the Jews, the Gentiles, and even kings. That was his motive. Grab a hold of God's word in your life. Let that be your motive. Let that be your motive. And like we saw in, as we're standing And I'm closing. Everyone's got a motive. I've heard it said this way. We'd be better to work with God rather than for God. God has a motive. God is in control. God is in control. God is for you. God is for you. Amen. 
If he's ever spoken a word into your life, you grab a hold of that word in faith and you don't let it go. You don't ever let it go. Not after 12 years. Not after 38 years. You hang on to it. You hang on to it. God's doing a work. God is faithful. His word is true. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word tonight. And God, in those moments, in those times, we all go through them. We're always, it always comes upon us at some point, God. What's going on? Where are you, God? You promised this. You spoke that. Sometimes it seems so far away. God, we're going to hang out a little longer. And our motive is going to be your word. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.